You're listening to Wiley Connected, a series of podcasts on tech, law, and policy. In each podcast, technology-focused lawyers at Wiley, a Washington, D.C. law firm, break down innovation and law with a uniquely D.C. perspective. Hello, and thank you for joining us for another episode of Wiley Connected as we explore Wiley's 5G regulatory roadmap. Today, we're here to talk about the impact of 5G on government procurement of services and products, as well as some of the risks and opportunities that are associated with the increasing government spending on 5G research and development. Today, we're joined by two of my partners, Brian Walsh and Tracy Howard, who are both in our government contracts practice and have done deep dives on some of the new federal mandates and restrictions related to 5G, as well as the the background rules of the road for engaging with the government in these ways. We're also joined by Hap Rigby, who's in our public policy practice and works regularly with all of our tech clients and associations on managing Congress's interest in these issues. So we're going to dive right in. So Brian, let me start with you. Why did we do a section in our our wonderful roadmap document relating to 5G, touching on government procurement and R&D? I think one of the the probably, if not the biggest reason, is the government is is the largest consumer of and, and spender in, in the world, and and if you take all governments collectively, they're they're the biggest customers of of a lot of the things that five G will will be play into, and uh, the government either through healthcare uh, services, drones, AI, whatever industry you can think of, almost they're going to be intricately in with with the commercial market in terms of development and also pay, helping to pay for development and then buying uh, things that have been developed using 5G. So I, I don't think you can separate 5G from the government because on the on the on front end, you'll have research and development being funded by the government. And on the back end, you'll have the government buying things with, you know, that have 5G uh, in it, affected by 5G. And so there'll be life cycle implications about with with government interaction that affect both people trying to buy and sell uh, 5G. Great. And I think, you know, one of the things that we talk about a lot internally is the government contracting space and the R&D space. Anytime our clients are interacting with the government, there's some peril, some danger there. There's also huge opportunity. Um, and we'll get into some of that as we go forward. Yeah. And just to add one other point is to the extent that government is establishing privacy or security standards or requirements in these uh, R&D efforts that they have, that's going to push out to the private sector as well. And so even if you're not doing business with the government, you might end up being affected by those requirements. Yeah, no, great point. We're seeing a lot of the stuff that the government is doing to regulate security and privacy through contract. I think folks on the Hill and in various agencies are looking to those as models. And some of the things that we're tracking at DOD, for example, are, I think, being looked to by policymakers as saying, hey, why don't we pick up that and use it to manage other issues? Uh, So we'll get into some of that. Hap, why does the government care about 5G? Well, I think 5G to a lot of folks, and I think policymakers included, um, on the front end, you think about it as an incremental evolution in uh, consumer cell phone service, download speeds, data capacity. But I think policymakers are now starting to understand that it's about a lot more than that. It's really a platform on which the economy is going to increasingly function. To Brian's point, this is going to touch all sectors, whether it's transportation, healthcare, financial services, obviously communications, data security, data privacy, have been mentioned as well. And so really, uh, there's a lot of opportunity in a policymaking effort here, Uh, different sectors being affected differently. 
Uh, we're not even sure yet how they will be affected, but I think policymakers in the way that they're approaching this see an opportunity to get in at the ground level on this next iteration of sort of our communications platform. So they would rather be proactive than reactive. And you're starting to see that, especially in the R&D efforts, a, a new bill, for example, introduced uh, very recently by Senator Warner, uh, getting into some issues about this new, newish sort of discussion around um, open radio access networks, for example. These are new things that haven't been really discussed and out in front of policymakers to date. So 5G kind of creates that opportunity, like you mentioned, there are threats out there. Um, it's going to touch all different sectors and all different uh, committees in Congress. And so that's why you're going to see increasingly active hearings and uh, legislative efforts around these issues. What do you think they're concerned about, right? I think everyone is pretty excited about 5G. They've gotten the message that you know, we're in this race to 5G, as some people put it. There's sort of geopolitical questions here. But what are you hearing, Hap, on the Hill in terms of the the concerns about 5G, if any? Well, I think 5G, first, uh, it's sort of a conundrum you get in as a policymaker. You want this new platform, this new capability to be as broadly available as possible. So in, in broad strokes, that means you want it in rural areas as well as urban areas because it's going to ultimately be about uh, workforce, jobs, uh, economic development. And so you want a network and you want individuals, uh, whether that be people or individual enterprises, connected to this new platform and therefore the new capabilities and services that come along with that. But with ubiquitous connectivity, you're going to have, therefore, any threat that exists in any part of the network is potentially going to affect any individual connected to that network. So uh, there's a keen interest on the front end, again, in trying to identify where networks have produced vulnerabilities in uh, prior iterations of services. Um, to see those in advance and try to cut those out on the front end this time around. You're also seeing it uh, with more consumer, on the specific consumer side, uh, with more connectivity and more cloud management, more data collection. You're going to therefore have an increased interest and worry around uh, misuse of consumer data, particularly personally identifiable information. Yeah. So the way I think about the government's interest in 5G, it's sort of a couple different roles the government has. There's the role of the government as a regulator, right, as a policeman, so to speak, of economic security issues for the broader economy, um, for economic security and, and using its trade power to try and affect supply chains and things like that. The other way that the government, I think, really impacts 5G that's relevant to this particular set of issues that we wanted to tackle in the 5G roadmap is really as a market participant, Right. So there's the regulatory, the external facing. And then here, when we're talking about the spending of government dollars and perhaps more uh, particularly the purchasing of things with government dollars, the government is a market participant. And I think that's what's interesting about what Tracy and Brian do is they help. You guys deal with when the government flexes, really, as a market participant to say, this is the easiest place for me as a government to affect policy, perhaps, because I control the dollars. So I think if we want to talk a little bit about how the government is flexing that muscle on 5G, I mean, one thing that we've noticed is the National Defense Authorization Act is the sort of poster child for the power of the purse, right? It's the must pass. Um, I think, Hap, we've discussed the NDAA previously on other podcasts. But Tracy, can you talk a little bit about 
what the NDAA really is and how it's being used right now um, to have the government's power of the purse um, and as a market participant affect 5G. Sure. So just to recap for folks who don't know, the NDAA is an annual authorization bill that Congress passes to authorize Department of Defense programs. And that's everything from how many people are in the Army to how many ships the Navy's going to build to missile systems. It also includes literally thousands of policy provisions. And every year in the bill, there are provisions that relate to government procurement and research and development issues. And so in the most recent uh, fiscal year 2020 NDAA, there were three provisions that specifically related to 5G issues. One is, it's called a Section 226, and it's requiring basically a, a pilot program or a proof of concept to be set up in the next year at two DOD installations. One is the Nevada test range, um, and the other is for DOD to determine um, where that's going to be. And the purpose of this is to demonstrate um, potential military uses of 5G technology, including inter interactive augmented reality, synthetic training environments, Internet of Things devices, and autonomous systems. So they are, you know, Congress is basically directing DOD to you know, see how you can put 5G to use in the battle space. And, they've and they authorized $100 million for those two uh, demonstration prog programs. Uh, the second provision, Section 254, Congress directed DOD to basically come up with a strategy and an implementation plan for harnessing 5G technologies for the military. Um, there's, they gave them nine months to do this, and they're requiring them to come in, DOD to come in every three months and give Congress a briefing on what the strategy, how they're coming with it. There's a whole list of nine different things the strategy is supposed to cover, including uh, strengthening engagement with outside parties, including industry, academia, international partners, looking at defense, industrial base, and supply chain risk issues, and securing IT and weapon systems against malicious activity. So it's a lot to cover in that strategy, and you know, DOD is supposed to be coordinating across the different groups, whether that's R&D, acquisition, intelligence, the chief information officer, um, and come up with what their implementation of 5G is going to look like over the course of the next several years. On that front, I think it's really interesting to note there are a lot of other demonstration projects and test beds going on related to 5G, both by the government and the private sector. And from my perspective, I'm a little, I'm curious to see how DOD does this and what lessons they learn from it, because I think there's there's so many different efforts underway across the government that, you know, I worry about duplication or overstressing the private sector resources that they might be using for their test bed might mean that NIST or NTIA might not have as many participants for what they're doing. But I do think that's, you know, super interesting. Yeah. And I think that the, the strategy is probably maybe Congress's response to that and saying, Let's make sure we're all, you know, working from the same sheet of music here to the extent that there are lots of demonstrations going on across DOD or the government. Let's come up with at least have a, a unified strategy of what our goals are. Yeah. So what about, can you give me like the quick hits on the 2019 NDAA? Because there was a lot of 5G-ish stuff in there, some China stuff. little recap, because I think some of those efforts are ongoing. Sure. So the, the big headline from the 2019 bill was the uh, restrictions on the government's ability to purchase um, Chinese-made items from Huawei, ZTE, and some other companies like that. 
and uh, prohibited the government's purchase of those uh, products and related services for government use. And coming down the road um, would be even a contractor's use of those products or services for their own purposes, even if they're not delivering those to the government. And those are working their way through the regulatory process. Um, The first piece of it, the prohibitions on delivering Chinese-made products to the government, went into effect in August of last year. There was an interim rule um, with a little bit of a tweak later in December. Um, We're still waiting on the final rule. And then the second piece of that will go into effect in August of 2020. And those, we've definitely been getting a lot of compliance type questions about how to make sure that you're not accidentally running afoul of these restrictions or you're complying with your certification obligations. Um, Before we jump into some of these risks, of which I think there are many, um, when you're dealing with the government HAP, can you shed a little light on the politics of the NDAA and sort of why all of a sudden, it seems to me anyway, not being a government contracts person, everyone cares about the NDAA? Yeah. I I mean, NDAA at its base, it's about directly supporting national security and military readiness. And those are both obviously broadly bipartisan and very popular issues. They have strong public support. Uh, Second to that is an opportunity for members to impact uh, some substantial portion of government spending. Uh, The FY 2020 NDAA was more than $700 billion. And so there's a lot of opportunity there to, uh, to get something particularly for politicians, something for your constituents, uh, quite frankly. Related to those, and not surprisingly because of those, NDAA is special, uh, if you will, because it's legislation that gets enacted every single year. That's been true for many, many decades now. And the respective armed services committees that develop the NDAA each year uh, take that track record of success very, very seriously. Uh, They hold it very dear, no matter whether it's a Uh, Democrat-Republican administration, Democrat-Republican leadership in the House or Senate, uh, they really deliver every year and they pride themselves on that. So it's really become, uh, to your point about in recent years, uh, being seen as really the only safe bet you can make in this town that otherwise uh, it's it's difficult to get results out of, um, certainly on a, a predictable timeline. Yeah. And it's, I mean, I was just surprised how in 2019, all of a sudden, non-DOD, non-contractor folks were starting to get very antsy about the NDAA because particular senators, it seemed to me, maybe you disagree, but, you know, Senator Warner, Senator Rubio, um, lots of folks felt very strongly, Senator Cotton and others, about some of these supply chain issues. And so we're putting things in the NDAA that maybe weren't like the kinds of things that are often in the NDAA. I think the point is that the NDAA is the predictable moving vehicle. And so because of that, it's going to attract and potentially increasingly uh, non-NDAA related suspects, if you will, in Congress. Uh, You know, I think under what what we would all consider ideal, normal legislating circumstances, you would have individual bills taken up um, on their own merits and receive regular order process. Uh, But that's not the world we live in. And so everybody um, who wants to make an impact is going to go and identify the moving vehicle that uh, could could take along their efforts. So, Brian, let's jump into some of these risks in working with the government. What do tech companies and others need to know before they hop in bed with the government? Biggest concerns for tech companies when they first get involved with government contracting or receiving grant funds usually revolves around IP challenges. Uh, In the commercial marketplace, you don't necessarily uh, lose your IP by contracting with 
someone else and they, they can't just take full control of your data rights or something along those lines. In, in the government contracting space, there are is a, depending on if you're in the FAR or un, under the DFARS, you're looking at two different systems that regulate IP rights and how IP rights are determined depending on the source of funding, whether it be commingled funds or purely done uh, with private funds or with purely done by with government funds. And also everything you provide to the government, uh, if it doesn't have specialized markings on it, quite frankly, you can lose your right to them or give the government rights in them that you're, you're, you didn't expect to. So uh, IP is usually one area where someone going from just commercial business to contracting with the government has to be involved with. And the government's tried to address that in some ways by expanding their use, at least the agencies that can use them, uh, of OTAs where- What is an OTA? Other transaction agreement, which is, uh, if you wanted me to define it, I would say another transaction agreement is another transaction agreement because it's <laughs> it's not a contract, it's not a grant. And uh, I, I, I dare someone to probably give a better definition than that. What it is, though, is because it's not really defined, it, it is created by statute. There's about 11 agencies, I believe, that have the ability to use them, give or take a few. It enables government agencies to deviate from the FAR, create their own, negotiate specialized IP rights with companies so you could get non-traditional government contractors to become involved with the government or jump in bed with the government when normally they wouldn't uh, because of their fear of losing their IP, their crown jewels of the, the corporation. So IP is number the biggest concern up front, uh, at least, I think, for a lot of tech companies. And then once you get involved with the government, uh, the, the the bigger the bigger problem is no matter what money you're getting, it's all subject to audit and oversight. And you're now, uh, unlike uh, in, say, just commercial contracting where you're you know, someone you contract with might have to sue you in order to get a look at your books, the government uh, has a lot more rights to come in and, and look and audit. And once they do that, if you haven't done a good job of, say, segregating funds and other things, you might be opening up your entire company to full-on inspection. And if you've done something really wrong, you definitely are opening up your your full company to, to being looked at, which is um, not something that companies are, are used to just in, from commercial contracting uh, with outside of the government. Well, is that easier to avoid some of these obligations if you just take grant money? I mean, what if you just, you know, the government's going to do a bunch of research and development, DHS has some money that it's going to give, Congress is looking at turning the spigot on for 5G innovation investment. Do you skirt those obligations if you're just taking grant money? Maybe 10 years ago, I, I think would have been at least, I mean, my view, Tracy, is before 10 years ago, I think the government had a sort of looked at grants as, well, we're giving money to people to do good things and to research. And, you know, as long as there's no huge... Uh, public outcry, then no harm, no foul. They're they're doing good deeds. Uh, now, I think the government realized within the last 10 years or so that between the False Claims Act and other ways that it is, uh, and also that there's a lot more money going out in grants and in contracts, that it was something that they should probably pay attention and regulate more, and that it's also become a revenue stream through the False Claims Act. So I think grants could you, just be as dangerous, if not more dangerous to a company than as contracts. Yeah, I think it seems more informal and therefore less scary and less dangerous, but the implications are just as serious as with the contract. I guess folks who are thinking about taking money from DHS or uh, the FCC or anyone else uh, needs to call their lawyer, so to speak. Um, so why don't we move to sort of emerging regulatory issues and threats? And this is where I think the government operates in sort of its hybrid mode. It's both use it's both flexing its procurement power as a market participant, but it's also 
setting standards of care that it knows other people are going to look to. But what, uh, Tracy and Brian, are the sort of emerging regulatory issues we're seeing that relate to 5G in the government contracting and grant space? So I think the big thing the government is focused on right now is this is cybersecurity and supply chain security. So they have announced this cybersecurity certification, which they're calling CMMC. And the idea is that there would be a third party that would basically evaluate your cybersecurity and give you some sort of grade. And then a, a solicitation um, when the government makes a purchase would specify what level of grade you need to to do that contract, because obviously not every contract needs the highest level of cybersecurity. Um, but for a select number of them, you really do need that high level. Uh, DOD says that they are on track to come out at the end of January with uh, what the CMMC requirements are going to be, but they've also announced that they expect some unnamed, undetermined third-party organization to do the actual grading. And uh, industry is very uh, interested in uh, watching that closely, and it's a little unclear what that third-party organization is going to be and and how that's actually going to set up once DOD comes out with the requirements. There's also, we've been working a fair bit with your group on the DFAR clause, which requires cybersecurity uh, minimum standards for DOD contractors. We expect that to jump into the regular old federal acquisition regulation, which applies to the other non-DOD agencies this year. I mean, what do you guys generally see as the trend for government contractors in this space and folks that are looking at cybersecurity as a government contractor? We see this often DOD is sort of the laboratory and then those requirements then move to the civilian agencies. I would expect something pretty similar to what we currently have in the DFARS would end up in applying to the civilian agencies, which is you need uh, some sort of cybersecurity plan. You have to have a policy about what you're going to do if there's a breach some means of notifying DOD within 72, 72 hours. hours. Yep. So all of that is going to migrate over to the civilian side. I, I wouldn't be surprised at all to see that. And even to the extent it, it hasn't already because it hasn't, doesn't have to yet, uh, I, I think in more and more in civilian proposals, you see requirements for cybersecurity plans and other things. Before they're required by regulation, they're becoming required by the, the contracting officers who include them as a requirement as part of your proposal that you have something or you're supposed to have something in place when when you get a contract or grant and then you have to comply with that from a contractual standpoint. So outside of the FAR, I think it's becoming more, more of an evaluation factor in a lot of cases. One trend I've seen on the Hill, Senator Warner and others are very concerned about uh, connected devices, IoT. And some proposals would look to jack up the security of IoT broadly, but a lot of folks are, or some folks are thinking of looking at the acquisition by the government of some of these connected devices. So I think that's another area where 5G is affecting procurement because the concerns about connected devices really flow from the kind of things Hap was talking about earlier, the general concerns about 5G security, connected devices, um, security updates, patching and vulnerabilities. So that's another area where I think we're going to see some more obligations on contractors that could disrupt how we think things typically are done when you're buying and selling to the government. Against the backdrop of all of these obligations and shifting expectations, I think one of the things that we help our clients deal with is 
the next phase, right? The sort of if something goes wrong or if the government wants to validate any of the things that they either expect that they're getting or the certifications or promises that were made. So maybe we can talk a little bit about what that investigation and oversight role plays. Because I kind of think in the security and 5G context, some of this might be event-driven. Either a security event happens that causes Congress or uh, DOD or an agency to really start looking back at what their contractors have been doing. But can we talk a little bit about auditing and, and contract oversight that someone doing business with the government might not appreciate? So de- depending on what kind of contractor grant you have, if you have certain grants, if you hit minimum threshold, you'll have a single audit grant requirement that'll kick in and you'll automatically be audited every year. Now that audit generally focuses on dollars and cents and comes from the agency and is looking at how much money you spent, where that money was spent, and whether or not what you spent it on, the price you spent for something was reasonable. So whether it, whatever subcontracts or subgrants you issued, whether or not they were reasonably priced or if you'd got overcharged and therefore it should be disallowed. So there's a, in grant world, you're, there's that, but then there's, you know, the contractual side is a similar uh, audit at times can take place where the government comes in and wants to look at either the agency itself or the agency through DCMA um, might want to come in and look at your books just to check where the money's going, make sure that everything's been spent on what you said it was spent on and also make sure that you were paying reasonable prices for the things that you were buying from other vendors to perform the contract. Yeah. And and I guess there are, there are restrictions on certain uses of contract dollars, right? Like you have to segregate those funds. You can't use them for lobbying. There's a whole bunch of those kind of things as well. Yes. Yeah. So there's what you did with it and making sure that what you did with it, not only was it what you were supposed to do with it, but you didn't charge anything either to overhead or to direct to the contractor grant that you shouldn't be charging. And if you did, then sometimes that will transition into an IG, Inspector General Investigation, which uh, will look at whether or not you were you know, just negligent or reasonably knowing. At that point, you start getting into uh, bigger problems in terms of an, if, once it becomes an investigation and IG gets involved, you're looking at potential False Claims Act liability, potential DOJ involvement because of potential criminal liability. And if it's a big enough event like a major cyber hack or something like that, then I think that's where Congress uh, often gets interested because there's, quite frankly, political points to be scored by bringing contractors to be taken to task in front of the camera. Speaking of which, Hap, I mean, what do you kind of, what's your take on oversight for these kinds of issues? I mean, waste, fraud, and abuse is always a nice three-part catchphrase for Congress. Yeah, I think uh, in general, you know, Congress, and particularly when we're on the this sort of new generation of uh, 5G sort of as a platform again, I think most members of Congress want to have a positive message. They want to legislate in a positive way to promote good outcomes on the front end, whether that's, again, uh, deployment of actual infrastructure or um, having an understanding of the, the role that 5G will play in American competitiveness generally. I think on the contracting and oversight side, particularly, you'll have continual kind of ongoing activity by the committees that have investigatory uh, powers and duties under under the rules of Congress. I think it's what rises to the level of needing uh, attention and, and to the point about points to be scored. I think that's a calculation that always comes into play. So to your earlier point, most of it would be event-driven. Um, and so I think as long as they're you know, it isn't the flashpoint um, headline grabbing issue. Uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't see a lot of sort of water being poured on the contracting side recently, um, or in the kind of foreseeable future. 
that can change in a heartbeat, of course. So I think everybody just, you know, needs to stay cognizant of their own behavior and obviously, you know, have, uh, you know, good counsel directing them about how to comply with various rules. I think one thing um, I'm I notice is sort of the shifting tone and emphases of some of the government's interests. Right, DOD's Inspector General just recently announced a project to look at foreign influence in DOD research and development. I think that crystallized for me this overlap between the 5G concerns, right, supply chain concerns. There's a lot of worry in the government about the influence of China in our in 5G networks globally and in the United States. And so that, to me, that project really brought those threads together, which is really what they're concerned about is Chinese research, malfeasance and, and allegations like that infecting what DOD is doing. So I think there's a lot more to be seen on how all of these different moving parts manifest in 2020. Thank you for tuning in to the Wiley Connected Podcast, brought to you by the attorneys at Wiley. If you enjoyed this episode of Wiley Connected, we encourage you to subscribe, rate, and leave a review on iTunes and SoundCloud. For additional resources and materials, head over to WileyConnect.com. Thank you for listening. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Wiley Ryan LLP and its employees. The material contained in this podcast is not intended to be and is not considered to be legal advice. Transmission is not intended to create, and receipt does not establish an attorney-client relationship.